like to <clears throat> begin this evening's talk with a few moments as though Cindy, sitting under the Bodhi tree with Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama that night 2,500 years ago. So sitting your body comfortably, relaxing. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And the Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest in a penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and a flow of an effortless effort, imbued with with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we said, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha, but we sit, we practice, we sit and we walk, practicing here in retreat over weeks, over a month for some of you. 
and all of us have practiced and will very likely practice intensively again in other places, at other times, alone and with others. Our aspirations, our determinations are often quite clearly and strongly felt and known. And of course sometimes they pale and sometimes may even be forgotten in the unfolding of our life. But I think certainly for most of us, more often than not, they're woven into the very constitution of our life, the very constitution of our practice. And so as we do practice over the years through this lifetime, the particular qualities of mind and heart that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated and unprompted at that amazing point in time, all perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of mind and heart continue to grow, continue to deepen and develop, continue to mature and be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we continue to practice. This evening I'd like to touch into and explore the quality or the factor of mind with you that the Buddha said was like a precious gem. Mindfulness, sometimes spoken of as awareness or mindful awareness. The knowing capacity of the heart, the mind. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being a most essential factor of liberation. And so we'll look into mindfulness from two particular perspectives. That of our direct experience, our cultivation or prompting of this quality through our ongoing practice, And within this, recognizing the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings as it develops and takes root. And we'll also touch into mindfulness from the perspective of its unfabricated, unprompted presence as an aspect of the mind, the heart, of non-clinging the natural place of mindfulness in the liberated mind, the liberated heart. And as I mentioned, the Buddha speaks of mindfulness as being a precious gem and that its development is supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation, the very conditions that we have here in our retreat. Mindfulness is a key factor for the mind, the heart, to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment in this case meaning the letting go, the letting go into Nibbana, 
letting go into liberation. As we explore together this evening, consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or uh, pointing out towards directly connecting with mindful awareness within yourself, which from my own experience uh, is facilitated by listening from the heart rather than listening from the head, so to say. So in support of this, it's helpful to relax deeply in and through the body. So just taking a couple of moments right now and relaxing from head to toe. Dropping into the body with a bright attention. Relaxed and brightly alert at the same time. letting the whole body, mind, and heart deeply relax into directly and simply hearing. So this factor of mindfulness, I think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of enlightenment of which mindfulness is one. And in fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for awakening. With its establishment and its blossoming, it's the factor that offers us the greatest protection. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. And when I first read this, I thought, oh, that's kind of a male way of speaking about it. The chief. So I put the female and the male together and call mindfulness the chief mother. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati, and sometimes translated as memory or to remember, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body, heart, and mind. Attention directed to the present moment. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be present because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia, Years ago, at a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? So 
So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a really good question. Mindfulness is such a common word in many uh, venues these days, which is wonderful on one hand. On the other hand, because it's so common and used so commonly, some of its depth, some of its potency is dissipated. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is this, just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is. Without the forethought of concepts or past experience or ideas of how we think it is or should be or could be. As Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. In Zen, this is sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, opening the door to the truth, sometimes appearing so clear and so simple, that we can hardly believe it. Sometimes appearing that we, in such a way that we don't always know, in a cognitive way, that insight, that truth, has been touched because it's so clear, so simple, and so immediate. The mindfulness that the Buddha instructs us towards asks us to not remain resting in our old habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia, but to really meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to really come close to see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects with and goes right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a stick, sticky or fixed kind of connection. Mindful attention is a very clear, fluid connection that lights upon the object just long enough and deep enough to know it. It's this flavor that allows a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness could be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I will repeat that. 
It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a really purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. So in this light, mindfulness doesn't think. It, it doesn't think, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment we think, I'm doing this, we become self-conscious. And we're creating or recreating a sense of self. Again, creating then a separation, a disconnection from the reality of how it is. Separating our self out from the truth of the way of things. Again, creating what's sometimes called the duality of me and an it. A me and an it. And we could say living in an idea. The idea of I. The idea of me. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action, living in the present moment's experience. So in a sense, we forget ourself. We lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is. Without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. And of course, mindfulness can be connected to the moment when we are thinking, I am doing this, I am doing that, being mindful of that too. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic. Not the magic that's created by magicians that creates illusion and then pulls us into that illusion, pulls us into that delusion. The magic and the really great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And then caught again and again and again in our reactivity to these assumed, meaning not clearly seen, appearances. And the result being that we often unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. And again, from Krishnamurti, he says, if we don't know what mindfulness is, we're like a blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. No matter who we are, where or how we live, All of us, every one of us, want to be happy. 
Most of us want our lives to be, much of our experience in life, to be permanent, ongoing, or at least deeply fulfilling. Or we want it to suit our passing fancies or our expectations or our heartfelt and deepest desires. Consequently, most people spend most of their time and most of their energy trying to find this, trying to satisfy these deep desires through external experiences by getting this or that, or him or her, by doing this and that, by going here and there. Or we try to find, we try to get an ongoing contentment, happiness, fulfillment through the constantly changing world of our senses and through the various and myriad constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. It's not possible. Look closely, look very closely. Come close and see and feel your experience directly. The Buddha spoke about happiness beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. In fact, he said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. And so we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. This is a practice of the deepest intimacy, the intimacy of a direct connection with the immediacy of experience in our body and mind, the deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice develops, expands, and matures, becomes an intimacy, a a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. We could say the direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment to see and know what truly is. How is it in this present moment? In this present moment? In this present moment? In this present moment? Essentially, this is what all forms of practice, Buddhist practice, lead to. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, mind. How is it really? Not what you hope it is or what you want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to the present moment's experience is what allows 
clarity and a true understanding, insight to arise, to just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't have to do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's actually right here, ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, intimately right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago I was teaching a class, a beginning class actually, at the meditation center here in little center here in town. Uh, once a week, Saturday morning class. And the students would come in with uh, the beginning of the class and share something from the prior week about what we had practiced and learned and discussed the week before. <clears throat> one morning, this one student came in and she said that that morning she had been watering her garden. She'd watered her garden hundreds and hundreds of times. But she said that morning when she was watering her garden, it was as though it was the very first time she'd ever watered her garden. She said it was amazing. And then she proceeded to say, how have we survived so long without being mindful? Terrible things are done when mindfulness isn't present. And it kind of stopped everyone in their tracks for a few moments. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. And as Patricia mentioned uh, some nights ago, the word heart-mind, we both use it interchangeably. And as far as I know, in most Asian languages, it's one word. There's not separate. We're not. They don't pull us apart. Heart mind is a a whole. We could say. In English, we don't do that. So we use the word back and forth between us. As we practice, we develop. We prompt this transformation of the heart-mind through our practice, through our meditation practice. Meditation that's based in mindfulness, based in mindful awareness. In fact, if we're not mindful, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, what's happening is is that we're living at a distance from experience, living at a distance from life itself which just keeps the cycle, the cycle of our conditioned habit patterns, the reactive cycle going round and round and round, feeding and strengthening itself, more automatic, more robotic-like, kind of like our computers. You know, you push the button and out comes what's in there. When our buttons are pushed, if we're not mindful, out pops our conditioned patterns, our reactions, automatically. It's as though we're living life through 
binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of various ideas, preconceptions, opinions, judgments, or similar past experiences. So for instance, an experience that I'm sure probably everyone in this room has had at one time or another. You meet someone for the very first time, a new person, never having met this person before. And you don't see them as they actually are. You see them maybe in relationship to what you're thinking about them how much you think you like them or think you don't like them, how much you think you're attracted to them or you think you're not attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. And so you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities of this other person that you're thinking about. Or maybe you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are or what you want from them, or what you don't want from them, or hope you won't get from them. So you're not really experiencing this person you've just met for the very first time in themselves. Without mindfulness, everything we meet, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see eat, hear, smell, touch, think, is immediately interpreted back to us, back to ourselves, in conformity with our habitual thoughts, our habitual patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindfulness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to really see things as they are as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's often called beginner's mind. And I had a very wonderful teaching of this from one of my grandsons when he was two and a half years old. His mother and I were taking him for a walk out behind their home at that time in Pennsylvania. And he looked down on the ground and picked up a pine cone. He had never seen a pine cone. It was his first experience of pine cone. So he picked it up and he looked at it, turned it every which way, looked at it very carefully. He put it up to his nose and smelled it. He stuck his tongue on it and licked it, tasted it, investigating with all the sense stars. And then his mother and I... <laughs> very dutifully decided he should know what this is called that he's looking at. So we told him, pine cone. This is a pine cone, Alex. <laughs> and Alex kind of looked up at us with a little bit of a quizzical look on his face and repeated, like a good boy, he said, pine cone. And then he dismissed us and our words and continued smelling, tasting, <laughs> looking, poking, prodding that pine cone, getting to know it, really, truly getting to know it, with a mind that was fresh, with beginner's mind. 
this is a state of mind that we can learn to bring into our lives as a whole, or relearn maybe. It's transformative. It's transformative and healing. One definition of these teachings and practice, the practices <clears throat> is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. And one description of this that I like a lot goes something like this. One who is awakened, one who has taken in the medicine of the teachings and practiced meditation and healed the sickness is one who's free from suffering. And that's really the very deepest healing that we can know. Freedom from the suffering of confusion, anguish, fear. Freedom from the ongoing wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction. Freedom from suffering. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the immediate presence, in the here and now. And I'd like to spend some time now exploring the first of these. These four domains cover the whole total breadth of our human experience. So our first domain is paying attention to the body in the body. just the body as such. And looking at it from this uh, sort of pure mindful standpoint, not one's feelings or ideas, concerns or interpretations, and the interpretations is a big one, uh, interpretations or emotions about it. And of course there are many and varied aspects of the body to notice and give a careful attention to. One of our primary, primary orientations to the body through our practice is mindfulness of breathing, as we're all aware of. And I have to say, because I think sometimes there's some misunderstanding about this, breath as an object of mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction or a beginner's way of practicing. The understanding that's accessible via this mode of mindfulness is really potentially profound. For instance, in making the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils, making that a basic ground of mindful attention I can personally say that at times over the years of my practice I've been deeply grateful and actually even awed at the depth and breadth of what there is to know and understand, what, what became known and what became understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath happening. So let's do a little experiment for just a moment. Close your eyes. And just for a moment now, let the attention drop into your breath. 
mindfully absorb into the rising and falling or the in and out. Without any self or with as little self as possible. Are you trying to manipulate or control the breath? Noticing this, noticing it without judgment, without any self-recrimination. Just simply noticing. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation very directly as sensation, as movement, as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath. Maybe noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end. Maybe actually noticing the ending, the cessation of a breath and the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may just simply notice the in and out breathing itself. Basically just this, which tends to cultivate an increasing quiet, tranquil, and peaceful breathing and an all-over body-mind, calm, tranquility. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday, kind of casual way of maybe noticing and some degree of awareness of our bodily activity but a closer, more intimate, a more constant and careful attention of the body in every posture. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and in all of the various movements of the body. Getting up, getting down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, carrying things, even bringing mindfulness into the experiences of falling asleep and waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone? A me? An I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be known as just simply standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking. Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me, walking, sitting, etc., 
Once, um, many years ago, one of my teachers, Sayada Upandita, asked me, in a practice interview, he asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're fully connected and mindful and noting walking, sitting, standing, or any bodily sensations? And for a brief moment, I... I felt quite caught in the question, or caught by the question. Which, in retrospect, I think was kind of a test. He was testing me, (laughs) testing my practice at that time. But in that practice interview, very quickly, there was a spontaneous reflection and then a response to Sayadaw Pandita. No, there is no woman, no man, or anybody known when I'm really directly connected, connected with and mindful of walking or whatever phenomena is happening. So a question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful attention of the body in the body, we also begin to notice some of the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by the action. In the intimacy of mindfulness, We might begin to notice, for instance, where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins, where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I, I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way decide to sit or stand or take a step or raise my arm. In fact, if we act from the place of identification, separateness, isolation, we'll eventually, or maybe very quickly, experience some degree of suffering. As we pay a closer, more intimate, mindful attention to the subtleties of the actions in the body, and the subtleties of the experiences within the body and their interrelatedness, we may begin to see and to understand the role of volition, where it comes from, how it arises, and not take it all so personally. And with this, in a non-conceptual way, touch, come to know a deeper, subtler cause of suffering which can then open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? A number of years ago I had a student, a very deeply dedicated practitioner who right up to his dying moment, he died of AIDS-related complications. 
and I would visit him every day in the hospital during that last month of his life to go sit with him because that's all he wanted was to people come people to come to the hospital and sit with him so sitting with him in the hospital one afternoon he was lying in his bed and he stretched his arm up overhead and looked at it very carefully turned it around one way the other way really really very present with it and then said in a very cool and kind of odd way he said wow that's all he said wow the form the posture and the movements of the body are just as dependent or interdependent on conditions they arise dependent on conditions just as for instance does the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or the disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment by moment choices are made but in truth they are also always a product of the play of various conditions can we give such a clear unfettered and intimate attention to the body its movements and the process of intentions that we begin to directly experience this truth the next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests actually he doesn't suggest but directs us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body and in the Buddha Dharma there are 32 parts of the body that's how it's taught hair skin and all the various internal organs and all the fluids and in our case here we most likely notice them as they make themselves known such as the stomach or the bladder or maybe the liver or the gallbladder the heart the lungs etc and I have no doubt that we do notice many parts of our body during retreat but how often do we notice them in a mindful way how identified for instance are we with the hair on our head or the lack of it or the hair on our body how do we attend to the experiences of the stomach or our colon or the digestive processes therein or to a moment or many moments experiences of the heart how do we experience moments in relationship to the skin this bag of skin that holds all the various contents of the body how often do we experience our nails teeth 
saliva, sweat, or any part of the body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness, mindful attention. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body. Without the layers of feelings, ideas, concerns, interpretations, and emotions about it. Just the body as a body. And this is from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides contemplating the body as a body. Another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other matter, any other form. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, potentially a kind of non-ordinary way to cut through the I am identification. We might touch directly, not conceptually, but through directly experiencing and knowing the experiences, for instance, in the body of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness, each of these being the direct experiences of the earth element. When we come to know the experiences of flowing and cohesion within the body, we're connecting with the water element. And when we directly experience and intimately know heat and coldness, we know the fire element. The air element is experienced and known directly in the body, within the body, with the experiences of pushing and supporting. So, for instance, wherever there's movement, such as the obvious sensations when the belly distends or the chest expands with breathing, or the pulse beat as the heart pumps, there's always pushing. How intimately, how mindfully connected are we to these most basic and universal kinds of experiences, this body in its elemental nature, essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction that the Buddha, from the Buddha, in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. And maybe seemingly not something that we have much of an opportunity uh, to do in this retreat setting. But the truth is, uh, the truth of the matter is that there are many, many kinds of corpses all over the place to observe maybe insects, 
maybe birds or other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants, trees, flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. So it's possible to observe this directly in some ways. I've been in retreat um, at various times and in various places and quite purposefully observed the process of flowers and grasses die and go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod, where we rented a house for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, um, certainly good fortune only in some circles, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Every day for a month, I walked down to that body and sat with it for a little while, noticing the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening very quickly as it was being helped along by the seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be very delicious food. This daily practice over that month-long retreat was a heart-mind changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and the senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Shah, tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand. And he asked that he be able to spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, though somewhat reluctantly, he says. He said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged, or more accurately, as he said, they were fully assaulted. It felt like they were being assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell, which almost drove him to run out the door. But he just very mindfully stayed present, and little by little it became tolerable. Just smell, just scent. He talked about his long-standing and very deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in all the various stages of decay around him. He mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and he saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, and was puzzled, quite puzzled at first. And then he very quickly realized that the bloated body that was right in front of him could explode at any moment. 
and he certainly hoped that it wouldn't. <laughs> and fortunately, it didn't. <laughs> he said that when he went back out on the street, he saw people in a very radically new way, with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. Every living form is mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Our own form and the form of others. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and unrecognized desire for and attachment to for instance, to the forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are maybe amusing or interesting to us or simply familiar forms. And I think what is actually strange and kind of amazing is that we go on thinking and acting as if we and they won't change, won't die which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting very closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in us. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can actually be quite helpful in cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do we know the body? How are we established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? It's through our own direct experience that we come to know to understand the true nature of things, not through thinking about or imagining or hoping for or philosophizing about or believing in. It can really be helpful to check in now and then and see if we're practicing in ways that are really truly moving us towards liberation, towards realization, towards insight, understanding and also the realization of the qualities of metta and compassion. Practice that is subtly or more overtly (laughs) rooted in wrong ideas, in misperceptions or misconceptions, can become actually very deeply rooted in the mind and heart and accompany us along the way of our practice for many years. So a good question you might ask yourself every now and then is, am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? Through a clear, connected attention in this first domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, in the body, we may come to touch 
if only just for a moment, the end of suffering. Our heart and mind opening in that moment to an unimaginable experience of ease, of peace, and a pervasive sense of well-being, which is really just simply our natural human potential, our natural human possibility. Mindfulness is kind of like a great treasure hunt. Within the framework of practice, we find the way, each of us in our own unique ways, which has to do with our particular specific conditioning. We find, we discover the treasures of the truth, the treasures of the way of things. Through our own direct experience, we discover the liberating treasures of who we are in the deepest and actually the most perfectly natural ways. And I'd like to close the talk with some words from the Buddha. It's actually a wonderful and inspiring instruction that we can offer ourselves. It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, Death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So let's just... Sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.